Our scripture reading from today is from 1 Kings 21, 17 through 29. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off from Ahab, every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Heather, for reading that passage for us this morning. A little bit of context. We are in a <laughs> we're in a we're in a sermon series on on the life of Elijah, and we're hitting some of the key points. and uh, And one of the things I want to talk about is how this passage is just about as Old Testament as it gets. Um, and and yet, it's happening in this <clears throat> sermon series that we have been walking through with Elijah, and a couple of the things that I have greatly appreciated about looking at the prophet Elijah's life is how one of our misconceptions about um, the kinds of people that God would use is that it would be people who are pretty put together, pretty composed, pretty uh, spiritually mature, uh, maybe... um, uh, have some sort of credentialing that would really kind of give them uh, the, 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 the kind of the right and the experience to speak into difficult situations. And when we come to Elijah, we see a prophet who is pretty rough and raw. He's, he's emotionally all over the board. Sometimes he is uh, full of swagger and confidence. Other times he's in, in the depths of despair, asking God to just take him out of this world and, and yet, he's the person that the Lord has called to speak primarily to King Ahab. And this is what he does. And it's this, it's this kind of confrontation to where even when you see in verse 20 of the passage that was just read, Ahab says to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? That we have these two who are kind of these... Um, at times they're allies, at times 
Elijah is caring for Ahab, and really what he's calling Ahab to do is just repent of his idolatry and walk in faithfulness to the Lord, and Ahab just won't. He, he just, he won't. He'll have moments where he'll uh, relent a little, uh, and then when the coast clears, he's just back in with his idolatry, and, and the problem is... Um, not that the idolatry isn't enough of a problem, but that Ahab is leading all of Israel in his own path here. And so Israel is following their, their leader, uh, and he is leading them into the rejection of God and into the worship of false gods. And the reason people worship idols and false gods in the Old Testament was not because they believed that these gods were good, they didn't believe that these gods were um, benevolent in any way. They didn't believe that they were loving. Uh, they didn't even believe that these gods made them. What they believed was these gods had some sort of control over the outcomes of things like weather and wealth and longevity and position. And so the whole point of the, the system of idolatry was to engage with these little g gods in order to get them to do things for you that you wanted. And worshiping the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, is a different deal. Because this is a God who says, no, I'm, I made you. I'm your creator. I'm judge over your soul and your heart and your life. And I judge by a standard of perfect righteousness, and I love you, and I've made you in my image, and I've made you for a relationship with me that's about more than what I can give you. That's a point where a discussion of Old Testament idolatry and worship really just joins where we are right now. Because a lot of us, when we think about even how we engage, if we would consider ourselves to be Christians, and we think about how we engage with God... How many of us don't at certain points think, if I do this, then God will reward me by giving me this. And so therefore I'll do this because what I want is the reward. It's not necessarily God himself that I'm after. It's the reward that he might give me if I show myself to be a good and faithful follower of his There we're starting to teeter on the edge of idolatry and we're starting to treat God like a Baal, or like an Old Testament small g God, where you can just sort of, you know, shovel an offering, a burnt offering into his belly, and then he will be pleased and give you money, or give you offspring, or give you health, or give you peace, or give you uh, any number of things that our hearts cry out for. And so that's in play in this passage. It's in play in our culture. And so let's work to tie these things together. We're going to get doctrinal today, uh, which I am excited. I always love to be able to dive into some doctrine. And particularly, the doctrine that we're going to get into is the wrath of God. So we're going to talk about the wrath of God today. Um, but let me give you some context, because we skipped over some chapters to come to this particular passage and so let me give you kind of a high flyover over of where we've been. So last week where we left Elijah was that Queen Jezebel was out to have him killed 
for his, uh, his destruction of the prophets of Baal. And Elijah was just in the depth of despair. He went and he asked the Lord to just take him out of this world. And an angel of the Lord came to him and gave him food and told him to go to the mountain of the Lord. And when he did that, he went to the mountain of the Lord and he got there and he prayed. And his prayer was basically this. He says, he says Lord, I'm, t- I'm tired. My whole life, my whole life here, my work as a prophet, as your prophet, has been wrapped up in just wanting Israel to honor you. And they won't. They won't do it. And he is feeling the futility of it all. And the Lord told Elijah, I hear you. And Ahab is going to face my judgment and my wrath. And then 1 Kings describes Ahab's journey from there. And it's just going from one war to another. There's no rest. There's no security. There's no peace with God. He is just a person who is in constant turmoil and constantly trying to just not die. And each time he gets into one of these positions where he knows that his life may be lost, the Lord gives him an opportunity to repent, and he never does. Not really. And then that part of the story gets broken by this introduction of a farmer named Naboth. In Naboth, there's nothing particularly special about Naboth. He's just he's a farmer who owns some land. And he has this, this place. He lives near Ahab's palace in the Jezreel Valley. So the Jezreel Valley is basically that, that portion of land between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. And it's, it's uh, this kind of arrow-shaped uh, place, place of land where there's mountains around, but there's a flat valley in the middle. And, and, and Naboth owns this vineyard and garden in there, and it's close to Ahab's palace. And so Ahab asks him, can I buy that from you? Because I'd love to have it. It's really close to where I live, um, and I'd love to use it as, as my own garden. I'll pay you whatever you want. And Naboth says, I can't. I can't sell it. It's, it's the inheritance that my father gave to me. I, 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 far be it from me to sell my father's inheritance. And then the best way I can describe Ahab's reaction to this is he pouts. He just gets mad and he gets sullen and he gets sad and he's kicking things around the palace. And Queen Jezebel asks him, why are you so sad? What's, what's up with you? And he tells her, well, you know Naboth with the garden and the vineyard? I offered, I made him a good deal, like a fair deal. Like I'd even pay over market. And he won't sell it to me. And that's when Jezebel said, aren't you the king? Why don't you just take it? He can't do anything. You have all the power, he has none. Just take it. And so Jezebel says, listen, I'll help. And she hatches a plan. And the plan is to bring false charges against Naboth and to have him then sentenced and stoned to death. And for it all to happen uh, through the legal system. And so he, he would die in a corrupt court. And that's what happens. These charges are brought against Naboth. He's found guilty. And then he is stoned to death. And then Ahab seizes his garden. And that's what brings us to today's passage. So that's the text between last week and and now. 
So what happens in today's passage is Jezebel tells Ahab, use your position of power for personal gain. You use your power to take from people who have no power. And it's really insidious the way Ahab does it. Because it's not just that he takes from him. It's the way he does it. See, he doesn't just take Naboth's vineyard, but what he does is he creates a scenario where what he actually does is he confiscates the vineyard as though it's criminal property. You know, like those cars that get sold in the police auction. Like, that's kind of what's happening here. What does that do? Well, it tarnishes Naboth's memory by casting him as a felon. So in his death... Naboth is now regarded as a criminal. His property is seized by the state, and the king just takes it and keeps it. I mean, that's just, that's low. That's really low. And it's an offense to God. And it's not just an offense to God when Ahab does it, but it's an offense to God when any of us do it, right? When any of us use whatever power we have to take things from people who have no power. And that's what happens here. And so the Lord sends Elijah to Ahab to tell him, God sees what you have done. This is where Ahab says, my enemy, you found me. And what does Elijah say to him? He says, in essence, what you did to Naboth, the Lord is going to do to you. But then it gets worse because it's not just going to do it to you. You're not just going to die. Jezebel's going to die. So will all of your descendants. And there will be nothing left of your house. It is a scorched earth kind of judgment. It's as Old Testament as it gets with dogs licking up blood. So, we have to ask the question, and it's a fair question. Why is God so mad? What's God so upset about here? Follow-up question. Is the God written about in the New Testament the same? Is he, is he different now? Is he less angry and wrathful toward this kind of sin than he was during the time of Elijah? That's an important question. So why is the Lord so displeased with Ahab? Verses 25 and 26 tell us parenthetically here, it says this, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. He put on a clinic for how to do evil in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And Ahab, he hears this from Elijah. He's been around Elijah enough to know. What Elijah says usually is what happens. And so he has a reckoning. And he repents. He, he repents. Now, he's, I'm sure he's repenting in fear, right? But he repents, he sees the apocalypse coming, he feels the fear of the Lord coming over him, and he repents. And what does God do? God, in his mercy, recognizes it. He recognizes the repentance. He spares him. 
though not completely, not, he says the generations to come are still going to suffer as a consequence of his idolatrous ways. So the question for us is, how comfortable are you with a story like this? Are we okay with this? Or do we say with a passage like this, I'm sure glad that the God of the New Testament isn't like the God of the Old Testament, because what do you do with passages where the Lord vows to destroy people? Where the language is grotesque? Do we say that the God of the Old Testament, that's just him, but thankfully the God of the New Testament doesn't do this sort of thing, as though this sort of thing isn't recorded in the New Testament in places. This leads us to what I really want to talk about for the remainder of my time, and that is making sense of the Lord's judgment and the Lord's wrath. In our culture, we often look at the God of the Old Testament as the cranky, violent God. But the God of the New Testament is much more relaxed. He's just cooler. Uh, In fact, many describe Jesus this way, right? Many would say, well, Jesus is basically somebody who's all about peace. He's all about love. Uh, He accepts everyone without any kind of judgment. And he basically agrees with me on most of the things I think about life and how the world works, and he's pretty cool, right? But this isn't the Jesus of the New Testament. When Jesus encounters sinful people, even when he heals them, even when he protects them, what does he say to them? Go and sin no more. And when he sees corruption among the powerful, the religious leaders, He rebukes them with the strongest language you're going to find in Scripture, language of judgment, where he says, you're going to have a millstone tied around your neck and you're going to be cast into the bottom of the sea for leading children astray into thinking that God is somebody that you can just pay off. Like, Jesus has strong things to say. Why? Because he cares very much about the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He says that in the Sermon on the Mount. I haven't come to do away with the law. I have come to fulfill the law perfectly, every bit of it. When we try to make Jesus into somebody who just doesn't have opinions about how we choose to live our lives, what we do with our bodies, how we conduct ourselves in matters of justice and equity, we do to Jesus what Ahab was trying to do to God, and that is turn the divine into a power to manipulate, to justify us having and doing what we want without any judgment at all. That was a mouthful. I'm going to say that again. When we try to make Jesus into someone with no opinion about how we choose to live, somebody who's just kind of cool with everything we're cool with, what we do with our bodies, how we conduct ourselves in matters of justice and equity, we do do to Jesus what Ahab was trying to do with God, and that is turn the divine into a power that we can manipulate 
to justify us having and doing what we want without any judgment at all. That's a heavy statement. It's also an offense to God to do that. And it's an affront to the gospel. Because the goal when we try to do this, when we try to minimize Jesus into somebody who's just on our team and wants us to have what we want, the goal is to minimize God's holiness in that process. And in today's passage, we see God's response to man's attempt to minimize his holiness. And his response is wrath. It's wrath. And that's what this passage is about. It's about the wrath of God. And the wrath of God does not go away in the New Testament. So let's talk about the wrath of God. Here's a quote from James Montgomery Boyce that we'll put up here. Yeah, you see it there. Um, He says this. He said, Scripture reveals God as creator, judge, and redeemer. But what is most important about them is their order. They're in that order because we cannot adequately know God as judge until we know something of our obligation to him as creator. Part of my story. Uh, Well, let me finish the quote and then I'll circle back. Nor can we know him as our redeemer until we are aware of how dreadfully we've sinned against him and how we have thereby fallen under the shadow of his judicial wrath. Back in the 60s, the 1960s, before I was born, my mother was living in New York City, and she heard a uh, person on a park bench that might have been homeless, is kind of in the Central Park area, um, quote to her, Simon and Garfunkel lyric from the song Mrs. Robinson. Um, Jesus loves you more than you can know. And she's probably 19 years old at the time, something like that. And it, she said it bothered her because it was either true or it wasn't. And then she started to think if it, if it is true, I'd better investigate that because what a mistake it would be if it was true and I, and I just failed to, to recognize it. Because under this was a belief that she, she would later come to articulate was that, was that if, if God is the creator, if he made me, then he has a right to me. He has a claim, I'm, I'm his. And I don't, I don't wanna be wrong about that if that's the case. That's what Boyce is saying here. He's saying we can't adequately know God as judge until we know something of our obligation to him as creator. If God made you, what does that mean for how you're to live in relationship to him in relationship to others? We can't understand the redemption part of God. We can't understand God's mercy and his grace and redemption without studying his wrath. You can't just get rid of that part because mercy and grace and redemption don't hold together without the wrath component. And so we have to understand the wrath of God. It's important. Why? Well, in our culture, see, we're we're ashamed to talk about the wrath of God because we somehow think that in talking about the wrath of God, we diminish the love of God somehow. 
but not so. And all you need to do is look at the incarnation of Jesus himself. When you look at the incarnation of Jesus himself, what are you looking at? You're looking at God's supreme expression of his love for us in giving us his son for what purpose? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because a baby was born? No. We celebrate Christmas because a savior was born. And that holiday, Christmas, is inextricably, intimately connected to the other major Christian holiday, Easter. Because Easter tells us why he came in the flesh. Why did he come in the flesh? To live in our place. To die in our place. To defeat the grave in our place. To give us life in his name when our faith is in him. See, the incarnation of Jesus as God's expression of love is all about wrath. It's all about wrath. Because Jesus came not just to tell us how to live. He came to absorb God's wrath toward our sin in himself. And we may say that seems like gross overspending But actually, it's the only way. Why? Well, let's keep talking about it. Because this is what redemption is. Redemption is taking on the debt of another so that the other is completely free. To understand the wrath of God, we have to understand and accept that we're sinners. What is sin? Sin is not just doing things that God doesn't like. Sin is rejecting God's rightful place to govern our lives ethically, spiritually, sexually, relationally, morally, vocationally, financially, in every other way that God has a rightful place to govern every facet of our lives. And God's wrath toward Ahab is because Ahab is actively rejecting God's authority over his life. And it's not just that, it's that Ahab is leading all of Israel in this rejection of God too, and they are following. What's sobering here is God's response to Ahab's idolatry is God's response to all idolatry in the Old Testament and the New Testament. What Ahab is seeing is not some special, deeper anger from God than anybody else ever gets. He is seeing God's consistency in his response to idolatry of any kind. That wrath, it does not go away in the New Testament. Look no further than Romans chapter 1, and you're going to get it. It's all there. Why is it important for us to, to understand that the wrath of God doesn't go away? It's because as Christians, our hope is not that God would somehow just lower his standard of righteousness and accept us as we are without addressing our sinful nature, and that he would just pretend that he doesn't have this, this consuming fire towards sin, but instead, what we're counting on, what we're depending on, what the message of Jesus is, is that the wrath of God is not hidden, but it is 
satisfied. That's the hope of the gospel, is that the wrath of God is satisfied. When we sing that line, we're singing an important line doctrinally, that the wrath of God is not just something he decides to, uh, you know, file away. It's that it is addressed. Why does this matter? Because God is holy. God refuses to do away with his wrath. It's part of his holiness. It works like this. It's his holiness that God, who is perfectly holy, wouldn't condescend to lower his standard of holiness to meet us where we are, but instead that he would insist, because he is perfectly holy, that for us to be in his presence, we must rise to his standard of holiness. He doesn't lower his standard of holiness to meet, a, to meet us. He says, no, you must raise your standard of holiness to meet me, because I will not budge. I am holy, I am righteous, I am perfect, I am God, it's who I am, and I will never change that, that can never change. And so, how is it possible? How is it possible for anyone to rise to that standard of holiness? There's only one way for that to happen. And that is for somebody to give us righteousness. For somebody to make us righteous in his sight by taking our sin upon himself and clothing us in his perfect righteousness. And that is what Christ has done. We have to remember that when God speaks of himself, he speaks of himself not only as our judge, but as our redeemer in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you look at the Ten Commandments, the preamble to the Ten Commandments is God reminding his people, I am the Lord your God who delivered you, who brought you out of the land of slavery and tyranny. On that basis, in that relational context, then comes the law. And the law of God that was given to Moses was all about how to live holy lives. And we've all failed at that, like thousands of times over. And we're going to keep failing at that. And what that tells us is the law of God did not magically manufacture holy people. What it did is it showed us how unholy we actually are. It showed us the gulf between God's standard of perfection and righteousness and where we are. And so what could satisfy the wrath of God by meeting that standard of holiness that is his and his alone? Only God can do that. Only God can satisfy. Only God can bridge that gap. And this is the work of Christ. We read about it in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. It says this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Christmas, right? Born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those under that law so that we might receive adoption as sons. James Boyce again, he says this. He says, on the basis of Christ's death, in which he received the full judicial outpouring of God's wrath against sin, Those who believe now come to experience not wrath, though we richly deserve it, but grace abounding. Here's 
the thought I want us to take today about the grace of God. The grace of God does not eliminate God's wrath towards sin. The grace of God does not eliminate God's wrath towards sin. What grace does is it eliminates our need to experience the wrath of God towards sin. Because Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. His burning insistence on holiness. Jesus satisfies God's wrath toward us. So how would we respond to that? Hebrews chapter 12, and I close with these words. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that you do not ever lower your standard of righteousness and holiness to condescend to have a relationship with us. Because if you were to lower yourself to our standard of righteousness, we would have no need of you. We would be fine on our own because that standard of righteousness and holiness would already be met in our best efforts. But instead, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And you have made us for yourself as you are, which is perfect. And you have made us to delight in the beauty and splendor of your holiness and your glory. But we're sinful people and we need redemption for that to even be possible. And that is what you give us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We ask, Lord, as we come to your table, even now, that we would come to your table remembering that what Christ was giving us as a church was an invitation for us to remember the way he has satisfied your wrath toward our sin in his body and his blood. And so we thank you for it. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.